So today we're talking to Paula. Hi, Paula. Hi. Uh, great to have you here. I am a fan of yours. I saw a lot of your work, especially around Asami and graph databases and RDF. And I really look forward to explore the topics with you. Um, where would you like to start? Like, would you like to start with who is Paula and like what you're doing or like, where do we kick off? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I guess I can start with who's Paula and what am I doing? Um, <laughs> I'm an Australian software engineer. I moved to the United States 12, sorry, um, 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I made the move because I was uh, uh, given a job offer in Chicago to do semantic web work, um, which had been mm-hmm. my background. Uh, for several years at that point. Uh, I I continued doing, in my own time, I continued doing work on an open source RDF graph database called Mm -hmm. Mulgara. And uh, eventually a non-profit asked me to come work for them to to do that full time because they were using it. Uh, I did that for a couple of years and then... um, uh, with the financial crisis making things harder for them, I made a move to the company Revolitics and they were doing semantic web work still, so I was still in that area. Uh, but they were using this language called Clojure and I was really interested in um, functional programming. Uh, I'd been using Java but I'd uh, gone through all of the lectures and some of the text for SICP Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I'd really adopted this in my Java, so my Java code looked very strange. Um, I and I'd been spending a lot of time in, in languages like Scala, so I was really familiar with immutable data structures and um, uh, using you know, immutable data in general. Uh, mm-hmm. But then Clojure allowed me to continue doing that but to bring in this scheme uh, like syntax or the Lisp syntax that I'd been familiar with from SICP. And mm-hmm. it just seemed to help all of that um, that syntactic stuff get out of the way. <laughs> and right. I could really focus on what I was trying to do. And so I really adopted Clojure, um, got heavily into it and stayed mm-hmm. with it even when uh, I moved away from Semantic Web um, about seven years ago now. Since then, moved to Cisco and continued being a, a closure person. Cool. So, how about we just unpack a bit the semantic web and maybe the work in um, you said Mulgara? Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, what is semantic web? Ah, uh, it's it's a few things. Um, it's a set of standards uh, for managing data. Um, mm-hmm. Initially, uh, the way that Tim Berners Lee described things was that the World Wide Web was a web of documents and documents could Mm -hmm. refer to one another. And these documents were human readable, human viewable documents. Mm -hmm. Um, This was back before web pages became uh, uh, like these dynamic applications that we have today. They were much more static. Mm -hmm. But he envisioned this idea of information which could form a web as well. So uh, computer processable data uh, which could connect across to one another. And so the mm-hmm. semantic web is about doing that. So while web pages are, a static web page is um, HTML, which describes format and layout as well, uh, but it also 
it provides uh, information for people to read and then annotates that with links to other documents. Mm. Um, the Semantic Web uh, has computer-readable documents, which is annotated so that it refers to other computer-readable documents. Mm -hmm. uh, and to do this, it builds on many of the same standards. Uh, the, the big one there is URLs. Mm -hmm. uh, now, back when it was invented, uh, Tim wasn't a big fan of uh, referring to URLs. He saw that as more of an artifact of the, the implementation. He always referred to URIs. Mm -hmm. uh, for a little while, the W3C was pushing to go to um, IRIs, which so URI is the um, uh, uniform resource um, identifier. And mm -hmm. the IRI was the internationalized resource identifier, which is basically mm -hmm. the same thing, but it allowed Unicode in all of the characters. Mm -hmm. um, and they went through a, an intermediate step of URI resource, <laughs> uh, which let you do some things, but it didn't let you have um, Unicode in the domain name, that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But the idea there is that uh, because people control the... Uh, domain portion of a URI or URL now, um, we could ensure that there was a, a universal uniqueness to each identifier. And mm -hmm. many people think the U stands for universal, but it's uniform. Um, but these, these things become identifiers. They don't necessarily have to refer to a location on the web or a document uh, they can be used to refer to anything. And this was actually a, a difficulty that a lot of people had to deal with um, mm -hmm. where they'd see URLs and they'd think, oh, I should go to that place on the web and download whatever I find there. And that wasn't the case. The idea was that these things were just used as raw identifiers. It became mm -hmm. best practice to put things at those locations to say, well, this mm -hmm. is the thing you were talking about, but, um, but it wasn't required. Um, and so this, by using URIs, we, we had this um, ability to refer to anything with its own identifier. Uh, we could, because URIs had this standard of uh, linking things already, like web pages, we had a mechanism for being able to get across the network and refer to things which were elsewhere that weren't in our, in our control. And... Um, so that was like the, the fundamental basis of what the semantic web was building on. Mm -hmm. And then they developed this data model for how things would connect. And the mm -hmm. approach they used was the graph. Mm -hmm. Now, mathematical graphs are like different to what people think of when they think of an Excel graph. Um, right. mm -hmm. Mathematical graphs are really uh, points. In, in some mathematical space with lines mm -hmm. that connect those points. Right, and those points are the nodes and then... We call the points nodes okay. and the lines we call edges. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, a, in mathematical graph theory, uh, points will typically get labelled with like A, B, C, etc. but they could mm -hmm. be labelled with anything and the, the labelling isn't mathematically relevant really, except to distinguish mm -hmm. points. Um, mm -hmm. And similarly, we, we, uh, edges will be uniquely identified by the two points which they connect. Mm -hmm. There are extensions to 
to how graphs work. So uh, one one important note is that the shape of the graph mm -hmm. is the, the physical two-dimensional, three-dimensional view of a graph um, is irrelevant to the mathematics behind it. Um, mm -hmm. So if you've got points and lines which connect those points, then you can plot it out any way you want so long as you have those points and those lines and you will have that graph. Um, and that's as far as graph theory goes. Uh, there's a whole lot of interesting things which come out of it, like how many lines can connect things and how many variations are there. And if you're on a two-dimensional surface, um, is it possible for uh, certain graphs to be drawn so that lines don't cross and things like that? Uh, right. And so there's all of this fascinating mathematical graph theory that comes out of that that's kind of irrelevant to this. Um, but there are extensions to the basic graph theory where we can then start saying things like um, we want edges to have a direction. So instead of being a line between two points, mm -hmm. we have an arrow between two points. And then we might start labeling our edges. Well, in, if edges have labels, that means that point A and point B could be connected by several arrows, each with different labels on them. Well, sometimes mm -hmm. you could have two arrows with the same label, but it points in opposite directions. So now we've got this extension where we've got a graph and, and you can have multiple lines between any two points. Um, and the, um, the way that the data model for the semantic web works is that each point, um, each node uh, gets labeled with its own URI. Mm -hmm. um, it is possible to then say, well, we know that a point exists and we're not going to allocate a URI for it, but most times a, a point will have, each node will be given its own URI. And then every edge that connects nodes will also have a URI as the label for it. Mm. And that's an interesting thing because if you've got a URI that describes a, uh, an edge, um, so say it's a URI that that describe that that refers to simply the name property. So if I've got um, several objects and I have one thing which says name house and name cat and and the name is a dog, and so I've got several things which have this name property and off to another node where uh, that node its label could be the the string um, mm -hmm. of cat dog or house. Um, that URI which which says name. Um, and it probably says HTTPS colon slash slash, you know, my right. domain, whatever, and finishes with name. Um, but that URI forms, can be used to describe a node in the graph as well. And now I can put a whole lot of properties on that node uh, and connections to other things. And so it becomes this, um, uh, yeah, it, it extends it out from a very simple idea of like nodes and edges into a much more complex structure. Yeah, so we built on these standards using URIs. Uh, mm -hmm. It also built using um, uh, XSL uh, so that they have data types like strings and numbers and date times. And uh, they, they built everything up this way to create graphs. And graphs let you say this say this web page is connected to that web page or this web page describes what I'm going to find in this other web page or this resource is a, um, uh, a vegetable and 
this resource with its own URI uh, is described by, and then I can have the URL for the Wikipedia page on that vegetable. Um, mm -hmm. And I was doing recipes last night where I did exactly that. Um, I see. So it, it gives you this mechanism then to describe everything. And you can pull any data apart into, uh, into these statements of one thing connects to another thing. And those connections mm -hmm. are, you know, can be, uh, is related to, is described by, is, is built from, um, anything like this. And then you describe how it connects to another thing and that mm -hmm. other thing might then break apart into lots of properties and, and features. And um, right. it splits your data up a lot, but it's a very basic structure that lets you describe absolutely anything. Mm -hmm. And, um, right. yeah, and so the graph databases, you know, aren't necessarily always uh, based on what the semantic web tries to do, mm -hmm. but the way it splits data up is, um, yeah, it, it, it's this common thing where you can uh, just describe anything at all. And systems mm -hmm. like Datomic uh, specifically talk about this where each of those, you know, one node has a property to another node or uh, in Datomic they say an entity has an attribute and a value. Right. Um, uh, so the entity and the value are nodes, and the value node might actually be a string or a number, but it can be an entity of itself. Um, right. We can break things up into these basic statements of one thing, uh, entity, attribute, value, and by describing things like that, that becomes uh, what Datomic refers to as a datum. Um, right. And of course, Datomic also adds in, and most graph databases actually do this, um, add in a little bit of data around that uh, entity attribute value in that uh, they might put in a transaction number or the time when it was asserted or uh, sometimes you can add in provenance or like lots of things about that. But the basic information unit is the entity, mm -hmm. the attribute value. Uh, in RDF, it right. tends to be called the subject, the predicate, and the object, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's all, it's all around the same thing. Right. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so from, from, from what I'm hearing is, uh, so normally in kind of relational databases, we would have connection by, uh, I don't know, a primary key or anything like this that will join two records. Yeah. Uh, but this connection would be, uh, it will just tell, tell me this ID joins to this ID, but I would not have any information about the connection itself. Right. So it will not go one way or the other, and I cannot annotate any, anyway. With graph databases, this connection is much more uh, relevant, if you will. Uh, that is that is that what I'm what you're saying, or I see it a little bit differently. Okay. Uh, I do agree with what you're saying that that how tables get joined according to uh, these IDs. But it's the same ID that appears in both tables. Mm -hmm. um, the way I view it is that each row in a table uh, is describing a single entity mm -hmm. uh, and it could be some arbitrary unit which is used to connect things together because uh, sometimes, you know, that, that's necessary to create a, a tuple will have... Um, the, the required information rather mm -hmm. than any individual thing. And that tuple may not be identified in any um, human describable way. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, you know, the, the classic case I was shown at university was uh, uh, the student has an enrollment in a subject in this semester and mm -hmm. 
you know, that forms a tuple, um, which, you know, might end up being in a table and it's an enrolments table, but the rows in that table are, are kind of a, a bit of an arbitrary concept mm -hmm. of how these things join together. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, rows in a table I, I see as being a single entity. And then the columns in that table are the attributes for that entity. And the mm -hmm. values that we find in the columns are the values of those attributes. And so mm -hmm. each row forming its own entity, when that aligns with the foreign key on, a, on another table, um, if they're primary keys for both tables, then really you're describing the same entity with different properties. Mm -hmm. if, if, it's a, um, uh, if it's a foreign key on the other table, then you know, that other table has its own entity and it's got a property with this foreign key column. Right. Uh, and it refers to this ID and that ID we, we link directly. So they might appear in different tables, but they're referring to the same thing. So mm -hmm. it's not actually an edge in the graph in this case, it, it's a merging of two, um, mm -hmm. two identifiers together to say, oh, this is the same node in our graph. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, so all of this that yeah. we just talked about, uh, this was sort of the how the Mulgara database was implemented or? So th this is what the Mulgara database implemented. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, how it was implemented, it was implemented in Java and right. <laughs> the, the, way, okay. the way nodes and edges appeared is um, uh, with, with something we call a triple where the triple mm -hmm. is the subject, predicate, and object, or in Datomic, the entity attribute entity and value. Attribute. Um, and the, there were just three things which are written down together as a tuple, and that is the edge. Mm -hmm. um, well, the two nodes and the edge. Um, mm -hmm. In reality, in, in Mulgara, it was uh, four columns. Um, so there was right. the entity attribute, value, and a graph. So that fourth one was a graph identifier so that we could have our data split up amongst uh, many graphs. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, right. the next In database I'm working on now is Asami. It has four identifiers, but rather than having a graph in the fourth column, it has a statement ID in the fourth column. And mm -hmm. that statement ID can then be mapped into the, um, uh, the, the transaction that it was mm -hmm. um, uh, created in, mm -hmm. but it, it's also that statement ID can then be used in, uh, in further statements to uh, say, well, this statement was made by Paula or this statement was, um, was made false on this date. <laughs> Even mm -hmm. though it still exists, right. I can say that, you know, I, I don't, I don't trust this statement anymore or something like that. Right. Uh, but it allows you to say things about individual statements. And there's several graph databases out there which have extra columns which allow you to do this kind of thing. Right. Datomic has two more, right? From the entity attribute value, we have the transaction or the operation. Yeah. And then we also have the time. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so w what is Asami then? Like how did you migrate it from Mulgara to Asami? Well, I had really let Mulgara become more and more um, ignored over time, uh, mm -hmm. basically because it was written in Java and I didn't like Java anymore. Um, 
you know, Java has improved, but it's still a lot of boilerplate. So I, mm -hmm. even though I can do more of what I like, uh, like lambdas and the like in, in, um, in Java, I was still finding the language to be very frustrating and annoying and I'd have to write 20 lines to accomplish a simple thing. Right. Um, and I often thought, well, if I need to introduce a new thing, I'm writing so much code to get a, um, to get a very simple piece of functionality. And if I was writing an enclosure, it would be really simple. Mm. Uh, like a single line sometimes, or it just, closure lets you get through to your solution much, much quicker. Uh, mm -hmm. It lets you focus on what you're trying to do rather than how you're trying to do it. And um, so I, I kept thinking I would like to do this. Um, and then I got the opportunity. I was actually asked to do it at, at work at Cisco. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that I was really into, and I haven't discussed the higher levels of semantics with the, um, the semantic web because I descri described the data model, but then the modeling over that uh, using IDFS and then OWL, um, this lets you do describe a, uh, a very rich set of um, interconnections between your data, classes and properties and sub-properties and super-properties and <laughs> things like this. Okay. Um, with all of these, this rich description of your data, a lot of metadata on it, you can then start making inferences on what your data is. Mm. And uh, so if I've said certain things, I can derive new information that I hadn't explicitly stated. Uh, based on the model that I have. And so uh, there are a few different algorithms for processing that additional information. Um, and I was looking for the most scalable initially. Uh, and to scale really well, um, I'm still a big believer in, uh, in the use of rules and a rules engine. Um, now, rules engines are not as complete as other pro, um, processes. Uh, so, for instance, a Tableau reasoner will give you a much more complete picture, <laughs> but it doesn't scale as well. Um, we've got systems like Stardog now, which are a, um, an RDF database that does have rules and it has a Tableau reasoner. And it's all pretty efficient, actually. So, um, you know, maybe I should just defer to people who know what they're doing. But <laughs> um, it was because of you know, wanting to do rules, I had that in Mulgara and I was, um, I re-implemented this when I worked at Riverletics to work on any Sparkle database. And uh, so that's RDF databases. Um, Sparkle is uh, the language and the protocol for talking to these databases. Um, the, I'd written this rule system which could talk to any Sparkle database and I thought, well, I could actually do the same thing on any graph database because, you know, the idea of graphs where we have nodes and edges and the direction to the edge, um, this is consistent across all of them, even when they don't look the same. So we've got a very different language in Gremlin, which is for the Neo4j database, but we're still representing the same structures. And I mm -hmm. thought if I just write a, a closure protocol that I want all of the graph databases to implement, I could have a rules engine which talks to that protocol and uh, I'd be able to run rules on any graph database. So I set off down with this approach and was initially talking to Datomic and happened to show my manager at the time, 
at Cisco. And he was really excited because we had a need for rules at work. And he said that I could start doing this at work, but given what we were doing in our budget and these things, he didn't see that Datomic was the right approach. Uh, he said, can you do something, uh, a graph database that's, um, uh, that's in closure? And at the time, uh, uh, DataScript had been started, but we weren't aware of it. Uh, we didn't know of anything like this. And so uh, he asked me to build a graph database, which was something I'd been wanting to do in Clojure. And I said, sure. And it built, <laughs> so this was Asami. And, you know, I did the basic engine uh, over a weekend. That's amazing. Well, I'd had practice. I'd done it twice before. <laughs> so, and it was in memory. So that made it very, very easy. Uh, and the, the query engine was, you know, quite straightforward and it only did a few things, but it did it reasonably well. And mm. the rules engine, I plugged it in to the existing rules engine and it just worked. Mm. And then I was asked if I could introduce a new feature and another new feature and another right. new feature. And, and the database portion got more and more capable, mm -hmm. uh, and it grew into its own system. Um, yeah, and so that was uh, that was the genesis of Asami, and you know many of the features that I started putting into it had nothing to do with work. So I was doing them in my evenings and weekends, and um, going forward, I'll, it will be entirely a hobby thing, um, right. as it you know really it, it came out of my rules engine hobby. But you know m much of it, the whole storage system on disk was mm -hmm. something I started in the pandemic because I've been thinking about, you know, Mulgara doesn't do things really well this way and I could do this better. And, and so I, I started re-implementing it and that's what <laughs> what it right. uses now. And yeah. So what's the recipe for implementing a database? Where how do you dissect database? Where do you start? Like what are the like the baby steps, if you will, if someone wants to go about it? Uh storage and indexing, I think. Okay. So um, you can approach it from two directions. One of them is the basis of um, your query language is going to look for data that matches the query, um, mm -hmm. especially in the case of, uh, uh, of a, an RDF, a graph database, uh, the query languages we usually see are pattern-based. You know, mm -hmm. I have this entity and attribute, what's the value? Or I've got this attribute, what are all the entity values? Or mm -hmm. I've got an attribute and a value, uh, what entities have that right. value? Um, th these sorts of patterns that we see. And then we can start joining them. I want to find an entity that has, um, you know, location Australia, where mm -hmm. uh, it's a, the entity has type company and so that's two patterns now, entity location Australia, entity is type company, and I, I link on that entity. It's a join mm -hmm. between those. And so now I have all of the entities which are in, uh, which are companies in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, so knowing this, you're saying, okay, I want to find data that looks like that. I have seen approaches where people simply store all the data in a relatively flat format and then mm -hmm. they, they find any data that matches the patterns by uh, simply iterating across it and, and pulling it out. Mm -hmm. And that works to an extent, but it cannot scale. 
Um, so then you, you're saying, okay, uh, how do I index this? Well, one way is simply write it out in a flat format but order it by one column or the other. Right. Um, and, you know, how do we order things if we're storing it uh, on disk, say, um, because, you know, if you find that you've got to put something in the middle of a file, you have to really take the whole second half of the file and move it forward a little bit to create the slot to put your data in. And that doesn't work well. So the, the most common approach there is to build a tree. And there are lots mm -hmm. of tree structures that we use for disks. Um, but uh, I've been using binary trees. Mm -hmm. um, B trees have much better disk performance in many ways. But there are certain things which made um, B trees a little more expensive for us at the time, especially uh, this came about with Mulgara. Um, uh, we were finding that using a lot of B tree, existing B tree implementations uh, had major performance penalties for us, especially through rebalancing. Um, we opted to work with uh, these binary trees which have order one rebalancing operations. Um, and the benefit okay. of that is that we could typically keep branches, um, paths through a tree in memory, and mm -hmm. then when we need to do a rebalancing operation, that occurs in a very isolated section of disk. And so we had much better write characteristics when we did this. Um, mm -hmm. And the tree structure, the binary tree structure, which allowed for that was AVL trees. Um, so Mulgara uses AVL trees and um, uh, Asami uses AVL trees. Uh, however, I want to move away from AVL trees for certain data storage and yeah. But the idea there is that I'm storing the data in order. Um, so some kind of squid? Oh, sorry, I'm not sure. I, I'm unfamiliar with that term. Uh, sequential ladies? Okay then. <sighs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, on disk, I actually don't store, like the entity attribute value, say it's RDF, would be a URI, URI, and then either a URI or some static, uh, some scalar value like a string. Mm -hmm. um, in memory, I do that. But on disk, I want every record to be exactly the same size. Mm -hmm. And I want them to be relatively compact. And so mm -hmm. instead on disk, I write out numbers. And every number relates across to a piece of data. Um, so this number means this URI and that number means that URI. Right. And I need some way to be able to go from a URI back to the number. Uh, so there's another index on disk which does that mm -hmm. um, for some things. Uh, if it's a smaller number uh, or, you know, a shorter string or anything like that, because the numbers I'm using are 64-bit longs, mm -hmm. um, I reserve the, the top few bits of that to give an indication of the data type. Mm -hmm. And uh, for certain data types, I can fit the whole data into the 64-bit long. Mm -hmm. So all shorter numbers can fit in there. Uh, all integers less than, say, 60 bits long, or it might be 58 mm -hmm. bits. I can't remember how many bits I've reserved now. Um, all integers, which are, are smaller than that, uh, all of these can fit into a 64-bit number. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, short strings can fit into a 64-bit number. 
Uh, mm-hmm. the, the top nibble indicates how many, uh, that it's a string, and the next nibble indicates, and the nibble being four bits, uh, the next nibble indicates how many, um, uh, how many bytes make up the string. I see. And then the, the remaining seven bytes in the number are, uh, are the UTF-8 encoded string. I see. Uh, so a lot of short strings will never hit the disk, never hit the index for, for strings being mapped to numbers. Uh, a lot of these short strings simply are uh, represented as numbers. So if it's longer, then yeah. it hits the disk. If it's short, if it's if it if it's inside the space, yeah. it will just it, it's just it. represented as a number, and mm-hmm. the number itself indicates oh it's a string and it's this long and here's the data, and it can be decoded pretty quickly, uh, right. or re-encoded, and it's those mm-hmm. numbers which then uh, form the statements. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so okay, we have. Uh, we have our query, yeah. uh, I guess. So we well, first we need to decide how are we going to store those things or so like yeah. some kind of like in datomic we call <coughs> mm-hmm. it datums, whatever. Then we have the pattern matching so we can query this. Then you mentioned the index. What's the next thing? Well, that's most of it. <laughs> that's most of it, all right. So when you've got a pattern, um, so the indexes, it's not one index, it's actually three indices. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And they're ordered in a specific order. So if we go with entity attribute and value, the first index is ordered first by entity and then for mm-hmm. where you've got multiple statements with the same entity, then by attribute. And then when you've got multiple statements with the same entity and attribute, then it's ordered by value. Mm-hmm. Um, the, next, uh, uh, the next index is ordered by attribute um, value entity in that order. And then the last one is ordered by um, value entity attribute in that order. Mm-hmm. And it's a rotation. If you're using just those three things, and I know Datomic has um, uh, a fourth index as well, but mm-hmm. if you're using, if you're just paying attention to those three columns, those three indices will let you find any pattern uh, immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, it just so happens that one of those indices is not especially useful, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is the um, uh, the value entity attribute mm-hmm. uh, uh, index, and that's where and that one would let you say, given two nodes, what are all the edges which connect them? Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, it is possible to do queries where you look for that, but it's less useful and given the nature of the way we talk about properties on attributes, there's normally a limited number of properties in your system. So you can typically actually drop that index and um, uh, emulate it. <laughs> so when I, when I have an entity and, an a, and a value, I can look for all the attributes which connect them because mm-hmm. on any one entity there's a limited number of um, attribute value pairs. And so I can just filter through them looking for um, the, the values that I'm interested in and then pull out the, va- uh, the attributes. Um, that's a, a possible, and I think Datomic lets you, doesn't have that index by default, but it lets you put it in. I think that was the one. Um, yeah. Asami and Mulgara do have that index, but 
you know, I, I could probably drop them and possibly should because it would speed things up. Um, <laughs> but th these three indexes anyway let you find everything you could possibly want in your system. Now, not necessarily in the best ordering so, because you're then going to need to link things together um, and merge sorts are really good for linking things together but because things aren't in order, you can't do a merge sort. Um, so, you know, there are other approaches, there are other indices which can be built and, and many other systems will build these other indexes. But mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, the raw, how do I match this pattern, uh, that's the approach that Asami and then a lot of other databases take. Um, and once you've got your pattern matching, then joins uh, either become, as I said, you can either merge uh, merge the results of two patterns together, or typically the more scalable approach is to iterate through the smaller of a resolved pattern, and for each value that you want to join onto, um, reissue the pattern match of the, the second resolution, um, re reiterate, sorry, um, reissue that pattern match request mm -hmm. where you've bound the value to the thing that you're looking for. And so if I've done a pattern match where I find five statements and I've got, you know, for this entity and this attribute, I'm going to have five different values. Well, uh, for the first value, let's, um, uh, you know, I, I'm saying, well, this value is a node with these properties. Um, rather than saying, well, let's find nodes with those properties and try to merge the two, what I do is I take the first value and go to that second um, go to that second pattern, rewrite the pattern to have that, um, that node pre predetermined for me and then mm -hmm. say, look for that in the graph. And I, I get back one statement or I might get back a, a group of statements. Um, and I do that for each of the, the things which I resolved in my first uh, pattern match and I reissue the query and it ends up doing uh, a lookup in, in, the um, in the indices for each one of these. And that gives me the join uh, result. Uh, okay. And you, you build out your joins this way where each, each join is you're looking for a matching variable between each pattern, um, mm -hmm. something that you match onto, onto data that you've already resolved. And um, uh, so that, that's the way that both Moldara and Asami uh, you know, rewrite their their pattern matches as they go down, and this allows them to perform joins. Mm -hmm. So the join operation is like the you know a very relatively simple thing to to accomplish. In that you know you iterate over the data you have so far, and for each um, and the thing that you're joining onto, you just find the the um, uh, the variables that you've bound, the, mm -hmm. the data in, in whichever columns that you've bound, and you use that data to fill in the variable positions in the next pattern and then just say query for that and, and concatenate mm -hmm. those results onto, the, um, onto each row of, of your mm -hmm. current results. And it just ends up being a series of concat operations in, in um, closure. Uh, mm -hmm. And really the inner join code in the first first version of Asami, um, which was still in, in the Naga code base, um, 
the the inner join for the inner join operation. I think it was like five lines long, if that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it takes a lot longer to describe what you're doing than to actually just do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and how does this look like from the other side? So like when you do any kind of transaction, like what happens during transaction? Well, transactions are quite different. Uh, with a transaction, mm-hmm. you simply have data that you want to insert. Mm-hmm. And um, if it's triples, like statements, mm-hmm. entity attribute value, then they just get written. Um, you give it to an index, the index says, oh, I have to find a place to put this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Where in the index would it go? Humps through the tree, finds it and says, oh, it's um, already here. Just don't do anything. Or it would go right here at this point. And so then it updates, you know, it, um, uh, it will insert into the tree at that point. Now, mm-hmm. what both Asami and Mulgara do is the tree actually holds, each node of the tree refers to a range of triples. Mm-hmm. Uh, so triples starting at point X and finishing at point Y, and there can be up to, I think it's something like 256 uh, triples being represented this way. Um, and what it does is it says, oh, it has to go into the middle here. Uh, there's, you know, um, if there's fewer than 256 being represented by this node, then I can just insert it. And the node itself doesn't even refer to the data. It actually has a pointer to another file where mm-hmm. there's a, a block that holds the 256 triples or quads uh, in there. And when I do the insertion, I find that block uh, in the file and I find the insertion point and I then slice from that insertion point towards the end and I say move it ahead enough space to, to write the new numbers in. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'll update that. And then the original tree um, will be updated to, to say, oh, okay, that block was, uh, that, uh, yeah, that, that block now has, you know, it, it had 73 statements in it, now it's got 74 statements in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and- and, you know, it also said here's the smallest statement, here's the largest statement. If I happen to write at the end or the beginning, it will update that. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's only when it fills up that it has to split a block and that inserts a new node into the tree and, and all of these things. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm also describing what happens, like, within a transaction. But a lot of the time when you start writing on a transaction, you find a place to insert and it doesn't actually um, modify anything in place. Instead it says, oh, I need to um, modify this thing. I'm going to copy the block that I'm going, that I'm, um, uh, I want to update mm-hmm. and I'll make my change in the copy of the block and then I'm going to create a, uh, a copy of the node in my tree and mm-hmm that copy is going to need a copy of its parent and need a copy of its parent all the way to the root. And, and this is all very standard um, uh, immutable data structure approaches. <laughs> uh, so functional data structures. Um, and so, you know, when we, when we start in, on a transaction, we're working we're on modifying data that, where the blocks in the file never actually change. Instead, they get copied and we're going to make modifications. But as the transaction gets longer and longer, um, right. then it's 
going to be modifying what exists more and more. And at the mm. end of the transaction, at that point, it says, okay, everything that was being modified is now set in stone. It's never going to be changed ever again. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, subsequent transactions are going to make copies once more. But right. you, ideally, you're going to have transactions which contain a lot of data in them. Um, whereas if you're doing a transaction where you're just updating a single field, uh, at that point, instead of having, say, 256 statements in a block, you um, you may want to have a heuristic where you lower that number to, say, 16 in a block. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't become so expensive if you're doing lots and lots of little minor updates. But if you're doing, like, loading a lot of data at a time, then having larger blocks works out better. So, mm -hmm. you know... <laughs> And what happened to the indices? Like, how do they how do they reshuffle? How do they like you know you well, change some kind of data? It's a tree, so they don't need to reshuffle. Mm -hmm. um, okay. They do need rebalancing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, trees don't have to be rebalanced, um, but they. Let's see. Um, if trees don't get rebalanced, then they. Um, they become less and less efficient to, to look at. Mm -hmm. And then in the worst case scenario, a tree can become a linked list. Mm -hmm. um, but your, um, with AVL trees, the nice, the, the nice element of an AVL tree is even though that it's binary, it, um, it's rebalancing involves writing to blocks on disk and there's a constant, um, constant complexity to that write operation, whereas other tree forms can have a logarithmic complexity to it instead. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, the write operations can become a little more expensive. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the indexes are, um, you know, they're, they're self-maintaining because it's a standard tree operation and balancing is, um, uh, is simply managed in the process of uh, doing insertions onto the tree. Um, and so long as, you know, you're inserting data according to the, the insertion description, like which order things go in, then, and you search for things that way, uh, then that's what the index is doing for you. Mm -hmm. um, any tree format can be used. Um, and I'm uh, hoping maybe this year, maybe next, <laughs> depends on my tongue. I've got so many things to do on Asami. Um, I'm hoping to try some different tree formats for, for things. Uh, mm -hmm. The data pool, which is the mapping between, say, long URIs and numbers, etc. cetera, um, that should be in a different tree structure than AVL. But I, I built the AVL and so it was easy to just use it for everything at that point. Mm -hmm. But I, I'd mm -hmm. like to try Patricia trees for things and... Um, uh, and hitchhiker trees. I know, oh, I can't think of their name now. <laughs> There's another project which is using a lot of hitchhiker trees for this stuff. Mm -hmm. But everything's built on, on regularly shaped blocks in regularly shaped, regularly sized blocks uh, on disk. And, the, and of course what I was describing is that once something's written at the end of a transaction, it's committed to, it'll never be modified again. Mm -hmm. Well, this gives you a lot of benefits in terms of you can duplicate those blocks with impunity because you know they'll never change. Mm -hmm. uh, you can put them in the cloud and duplicate them. You can, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of benefits to this that allow scaling of your queries because now your blocks can be replicated 
Um, you can have more than one machine looking at them. You can put them, as I said, in the cloud, um, you know, lots of things like that. Mm-hmm. So, the, yeah, uh, we, we get the, there's a whole lot of architectural decisions which all seem to tie in well to uh, lead to new functionality, which I haven't got to yet with Asami, but mm-hmm. I do plan to, and that was always right. the plan. And uh, when it comes to transactor itself, there's one transactor that just writes all of this uh, information. Yeah, Mm. yeah. So the Um, same as in Datomic. Now, one thing that I've been Mm. speculating about, um, somebody raised it at Strangeloop and I've been thinking about it ever since. There is no reason why you can't have more than one transaction going on at a time, except Mm -hmm. those transactions don't know about each other. Right. So you could then consider like what's a way of merging these transactions together um, and, you know, if you're talking about different entities, different nodes, then that's going to be easy because they just all go into the graph. But if you're adding or removing properties from, from nodes, then there's going to be some kind of conflict and you're going to need some sort of resolution for merging them. Um, but this really allows you to branch in your transactions much as if you were um, you had multiple developers working on GitHub at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you then, you know, when that happens, you need some sort of merging strategy um, uh, or rebasing or, or things like that um, when, when you try to resolve branches and bring them back together. But, you know, theoretically in GitHub, everybody can fork and go in their own directions with different branches. Um, but regularly what we do is we tend to merge branches back into, into the main branch. And, you know, at that point, you know, if I've modified that file and you've modified another file, that's usually okay. Um, but if we've both, you know, and if we've both modified the same file but in different sections, that's usually okay. But when we've modified the same area, then we need to resolve the conflict. Um, And we do that manually today. Um, But textual lines are actually quite complex, whereas datums or, you know, single edges in the graph are much, much simpler. So um, there may be a way to automate a lot of it. Um, The problem, though, is that just because... Um, there doesn't appear to be an automated conflict. Sometimes when you've merged something in one namespace and I've merged something in another namespace, um, one of us has changed behaviour that the other was expecting. And uh, even though we may be able to automatically merge things from a syntactic perspective, um, the the, the semantics of, of what the code does has now changed and we start failing regression tests, for instance. Mm. Um, you know, how to deal with that kind of thing, that becomes much more complex. And I haven't really figured out exactly what I want to do or how to manage that for the, for the moment because that mm-hmm. is a bit of a complex problem. But there's a lot of possibilities in having, you know, the same graph go off in multiple directions and then try to merge them back together, say. Um, mm. Certainly it's useful to be able to take a graph and, and experiment on it and uh, try to do things while someone else is committing to it um, and where you're in your own isolated little branch. But this idea of merging them back in 
uh, is, is interesting. But yeah, the transactor becomes a bottleneck if you need to have mm-hmm. a, um, uh, if you want to have consistency through the main uh, commit branch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so what Asami does is it, it locks things out. It doesn't allow for more than a single transaction to be occurring concurrently. Um, mm-hmm. As I'm saying, I can, I can loosen that restriction easily, but uh, then how do I merge the data back in? I don't know. Um, right. But at the moment it, it locks and it will only allow a single transaction at a time, so it pipelines them one after the other. Um, however, queries are always able to execute at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah, it, it's only writes which have that particular locking issue. Mm-hmm. So I guess for the queries, you obtain the database value from the connection and then you just grab the data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the database value is actually um, a pointer to the root of the tree for the indexes. Mm-hmm. And um, because whenever a database is written to, uh, that creates you know, new nodes in a tree, it'll, um, and whenever a, a node gets modified in a tree, it, it gets copied to do that. And that means mm-hmm. that its parent had to be copied all the way to the root. And, mm-hmm. you know, trees, that's, you know, logarithmic in space, which typically isn't too expensive. Um, mm-hmm. But the outcome is that the, at the end of a transaction, you always have a new root to the tree. Mm-hmm. So um, there are four indices in Asami. And that means you've got four roots to the tree, which represents the state of the database at the end of a transaction. Mm -hmm. Um, And a connection holds on to an array of all of the database states back to when it was first created up till now. Mm -hmm. And so with a connection, I can say, give me the database, and it just gets to the end of that array. Mm-hmm. Or I can say, give me the old database and it, it just hunts back through the array for the run, for the timestamp. And then right. it says, well, this is what the database looked like at that point. Right. The time traveling, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, at that point, I go back in time because of the whole branching thing, which I currently d- don't allow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point, you could start issuing transactions on something in the past right? and end up with an entirely new branch. But as I said, I don't have a merge strategy there, so I've, um, uh, I disallow that. But there's no sure. reason you can't do it. Right, right. How to easily corrupt data. <laughs> well, that's the point. It doesn't corrupt right. anything. You just end up with another branch. Right. Well, yeah, maybe corrupt is the wrong word, but how to like, manipulate the data your way. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, in the end, you then start saying, well, rather than having a, a line uh, an array of this is what yeah. the um, th- this is what the database looks like over time. Yeah. Uh, now I have a tree. <laughs> it's like where in the tree do I go? Well, if I start at right. thi- this end, I can go back to the root of the tree, and it looks like a line. But coming forward, I mean, there's so many different branches, right. so mm. you know, different timelines. Right. It reminds me of the uh, Back to the Future, yeah, uh-huh. uh, the movie yeah. when they just went back and. Alters the future, you know. Yeah, you go back. You, you <laughs> when you try to travel to the future again, you go off, off a different branch. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You can never go back to your first branch. Right. Um, so, um, is there any any other nuggets? I well, we can also talk about schema versus schemaless. Um, well, that's a an RDF thing. 
RDF exists mm-hmm. in what's called the open world. Mm-hmm. And Datomic explicitly states, well, the, the documentation explicitly states it's a closed world. Um, so these ideas don't affect a lot of how the database operates. In terms of implementation, mm-hmm. it's very similar. Um, but what um, th- this affects how things are viewed by the, the user. Um, so in terms of RDF, um, th- the idea there is that potentially every statement is true in the universe. Mm-hmm. And here the database only stores the statements that we know are 100% certainty to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because a statement doesn't exist doesn't mean that it's not real. Mm-hmm. They told me takes the other approach where only the statements which are in the database are true and nothing else is true until we've put it in. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't seem, that, that seems to be like a, a very vague <laughs> difference. Sure. But um, one of the, diff- one of the um, uh, consequences of this is things like um, uh, cardinality. So if I say that um, entities may have a name mm-hmm. in the RDF world, it's fine for, um, for me to say that something has a name, that a, an entity has a name William, but I could also say it has the name Bill because that's an alternative name. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Datomic, uh, I could, you know, if I want to say that something has the name William, I now, and generally things have only single cardinality unless you've said right. otherwise. Right. Um, so when I, I declare the name attribute, I've, I say, okay, this is single cardinality. And so when I say that this entity has name William, that is the name and it will never have another name. It can't have you know, it, it can't have an alternative name. So I'll di- need mm-hmm. a different attribute, nickname, for instance, if I want to say Bill right. or Will or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, so in Datomic, if I want to have extra data like that, I have to explicitly describe a schema to say, this is what I have. And mm-hmm. this is, and therefore, this is what I don't have. Whereas in Datomic, mm-hmm. sorry, in, in RDF, uh, which is Asami's approach. Um, if I say entity has name William, that does not exclude entity having name Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can just put that in. I can put in as many names for an entity as I want and you can never know that you've got only got so many. Um, mm-hmm. So what that means is that, say, um, you know, Bill has a falling out with, with his family and decides that he wants to be called Tom now and disappear. <laughs> and so he tries to change his name to Tom. In Datomic, you would update the name to Tom. Mm-hmm. But in, um, in Asami, you can't just add Tom in as a name because now he has names William and Tom. Right. So I actually need to do uh, a removal of entity having name William and an addition of entity having name Tom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is where the, the schema starts mattering and this is where the, the open world assumption comes in. Um, 
because RDF, Asami, would allow as many names on an entity as possible. And um, so you have to explicitly get rid of one thing and put something else back in to replace it. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so that, that's one element of the, the schema. Another thing with Datomic schema is that these attributes have data types on them. So mm -hmm. if I put in an age, then that might be a, a long value. Right. So a person has an age of 30 and then they can have an age of 31. But if I come along and I say, well, actually this person is 30.5, mm -hmm. that wouldn't meet the schema for Datomic. Right. Mm -hmm. In Asami, in, in RDF, generally you could do exactly that. You could put in mm -hmm. 30.5 or you could put in a string of T-H-I-R-T-Y-F-I-V-E. So you, you know, so the data types are fixed in Datomic. And that becomes a little awkward if you have a data type where you're relating across to something and um, it needs to be of a general type so that I can put in uh, like strings or numbers in a particular place. And that doesn't happen very often, but there are occasions where it might occur. Um, especially if you want to build data structures, which I've wanted to do in the past. So mm -hmm. building a linked list, for instance, in, in the graph, uh, the elements of that list need to have uh, values, which in one case could be a, a list of strings, another time it could be a list of dates. And these mm -hmm. are different data types. And so I need different attributes to refer to them in Datomic because each attribute can only refer to one, um, one type of data. Uh, in Asami or in uh, RDF databases in general, um, then you don't need to worry about that. That's, you know, data types are, uh, are quite open. Mm. Now there is a schema, there is uh, the web ontology language, OWL, which uh, lets you describe things a little more carefully you can describe that an attribute has cardinality one. You can describe that um, the range of this attribute is a um, uh, is an integer. Um, it, in some cases, this doesn't actually uh, do what you think it's going to do. So, if mm -hmm. I say the range of the of age is integer, and then I put in you know, T-H-I-R-T-Y, a, a string in that place, it will try to infer that that string is a number. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unless you have a rule engine or, or some other um, reasoner on your database, it won't realise that, that, that there's some kind of conflict there. Or it'll see mm -hmm. the conflict and say, okay, this is a weird case where this string is a number. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's... This is where the open world, again, comes back to, to bite people. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not a very commonly understood approach to dealing with data, but it was a necessary one when it came to the semantic web because the idea was to be able to take data from all over the world and merge it uh, cleanly. Mm -hmm. And by assuming a closed world assumption, as Datomic does, then this um, it doesn't work to work with data you know, you may have a link across the data which has more stuff associated with it 
And you need to be able to deal with the fact that there's a whole lot of statements out there that you can't see right now, but which are nonetheless valid. And mm -hmm. they need to be able to work in with your data because you've tried to create a link between your data and their data. So the open world mm -hmm. assumption was necessary for RDF. Anyway, this is the semantic approach that I take to Asami because I've worked with RDF for so many years. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I, you know, as we sort of end up being comparing Asami to Datomic in a lot of ways, uh, and I don't think we mean it in like this is wrong, this is right. Oh I no, think no, it's no just different, different ways approaches. of accomplishing yeah. the similar things. Right, right. Uh, so as we are on this, uh, Datomic has also something called transaction functions. Yes. Uh, how does this work in Asami? Asami doesn't have them. I have been, okay. this is a feature I'm thinking of adding, but it doesn't have them. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've got and things internally, anyone, but I, I yeah. do want to create things for people to, um, to load up at runtime. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a little awkward in one case. Um, mm -hmm. At one point... Uh, I was asked if I could move both the rules engine, Naga, and the database, Asami, into the browser. So mm -hmm. I ported everything into ClojureScript. Mm -hmm. And so Cisco has been using Asami um, and it uses it in the browser. <laughs> so it keeps all of the data, you know, as a, as a queryable graph database in your web page. Right. Uh, and, you know, you can also have database at the back end as well, but it, mm -hmm. it actually runs one in, inside a web page. And that, um, that means that if you want to load up arbitrary functions for operating on the database, it starts becoming a little fraught um, mm -hmm. if users have access to, you know, to being able to run code in your web page. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a user interface need not provide that access, but um, we need to be careful. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I've got to think that through on how that's going to work in ClojureScript because mm -hmm. often there are connections to what's going on with the um, user interaction and, um, you know, loading up, uh, allowing a user to load in um, uh, functions which can operate on your data could be mm -hmm. awkward and I've got to think that one through properly. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, also uh, the what language support do I want to have happen there? Um, mm -hmm. Because if I'm, you know, the, the natural thought is ClojureScript, but that would mean that you need self-hosted ClojureScript in, in Asami, um, mm -hmm. which actually at one point I had. Uh, there is okay. there was security issues around that. It's not so bad, but um, at one point we got to a stage where everything was working fine, and then a different namespace got a bit bigger, and suddenly the self-hosting wouldn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know, prior to this trend, so prior to this git commit, everything worked, and after the git commit, in unrelated namespaces suddenly it didn't, the self-hosting wouldn't work anymore. And it mm -hmm. almost seems as if when self-hosting got over a particular size limit, it, it stopped. Um, mm -hmm. That was a few years ago now, so um, I'm sure that that problem has been addressed <laughs> since then. Um, but, in fact, the, the biggest issue was not running in the browser but running at the back end 
because uh, at that point you've got full access to the file system and, and everything there. So right. where, uh, you know, so do I want to run things in, uh, do I want my functionality to be in Clojure script or Clojure or do I want it to be in something else or, you know, how am I, uh, do I presume that anyone who has access to administering the database is allowed to load in uh, mm -hmm. transaction functions or, you know, how, how does this work? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, uh, the, I, I just have a couple of open questions about the way I want to approach it. Um, mm -hmm. It's probably just fine and I'm, I'm worrying needlessly, but um, given that I have other priorities, I haven't got to that one yet. Right. Uh, would there be anything else worth talking about when it comes to Sami or do you feel like we covered most of the things? It's weird working in a database like this, there's actually a whole lot of different engineering elements to it mm -hmm. that, that come up. Uh, so there's a whole lot of things which we haven't discussed and don't need to discuss, but um, which can be talked about, like, you know, the, the data serialization or the fact that, you know, Asami, because it's open world, it can take... Mm -hmm arbitrary JSON or Eden and just load it um, mm -hmm. and open world and without and being schemaless. Um, and, you know, I, I have to analyze that structure, turn that into a graph and, and load it up and how to do that efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to, I, I need to perform joins. At the moment, the way that joins work is when I get statements back, they get converted immediately into the, you know, out of numbers into the real world uh, data like URIs and strings and the like. And I do that eagerly where they, they get mapped back instantly and then all the joins occur on the globalized form. But when I'm doing a join between two patterns which were resolved from disk, then I could actually do the joins on numbers, which would be a lot faster and more efficient. And I need to get that doing, that happening. And I mean, like, I'm also, the work I'm doing right now is about transactions occurring in background threads. Mm -hmm. So that um, transactions actually will go into a hybrid graph, which is backed by what's on disk and a graph in memory and resolving mm -hmm. against it becomes a concatenation of, of resolutions between the two. Um, and then once the transaction's over and I've got this hybrid, it will then launch a future that dumps the memory graph into the on-disk graph and then updates itself internally to say, okay, now I'm entirely on-disk and I can inform the, um, inform the greater system of this so that anyone who, uh, you know, anyone who was referring to me will now see the, the update. Well, they don't see that anything changed. It all still looks like the same data, but now... Uh, the, the thing is that I want to cascade them so that when that's finished moving everything that's in memory onto disk, any further transactions which were a hybrid between that one and in memory will now know to launch its future and dump what's in memory onto disk. And so all of these um, transactions can build up in the background and uh, give you much better performance as you're, as you're working with it. Um, and so then the transactions will flush themselves to disk over time. 
So if you were to pull the plug in the middle of an operation, you'd, um, you might lose the last few transactions. And like, do I want to store them in an unindexed flat format somewhere so that I can um, uh, reschedule them on power up again? Um, mm -hmm. Like, it's really interesting because there's so many different facets to all of this. There's a yeah. whole schema thing. I do want to provide temporary schemas. I want to, mm -hmm. um, so that, <laughs> because it's, it's awkward for people to say, oh, I need to get rid of this statement and add in a replacement. Uh, what if I just have a schema which says you can do that? And at the moment I have annotations which let you do that easily, but a schema might be a more familiar approach for people. Mm -hmm. uh, I, want to, I want to bring that in. I've got, um, like, the backlog's getting long. <laughs> yeah, it uh, sounds like, yeah. And it's just there, there's um, a lot of things to consider. Uh, rules, uh, I use Naga for rules, but... Datomic rules are really quite interesting in what they they can do, and I'm thinking that I should allow for those rules as well. Um, mm -hmm. And that, you know, especially when they become recursive, that gets a little awkward. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, uh, even just languages. I want to put a Sparkle wrapper around it, so my work is about to return to semantic web again and mm -hmm. you know if the database that i maintain as a hobby can't do semantic web because it doesn't have sparkle or rdf support mm -hmm. then that would seem rather silly to me so i want to mm -hmm. create um you know tools for loading rdf and and exporting rdf uh and also to do sparkle queries which mm -hmm. translate quite easily into asami queries but um yeah i mean there's so many different elements of Engineering in, mm -hmm. in all of this. Uh, I need better cloud support. <laughs> I need that whole replication system, you know, being useful um, mm -hmm. that I was talking about. Um, there's, uh, I quite like it as a, um, as a project because it's, it just incorporates so many different elements of engineering into it. Um, mm -hmm. And you can just go in lots of different directions. It's always quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, sounds great. Um, how about we try to wrap up a bit? <laughs> sure. And I will ask you a question. When would I choose to use Graph Database over, I don't know, a, 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 a data store database or um, a relational database? Relational databases are really good for regular data that, that conforms to a particular pattern. So mm -hmm. uh, records about, like, people or companies or uh, transactions or, you know, where you've got um, particular records that you want to store and retrieve, mm -hmm. um, then relational databases are ideal at that. Um, mm -hmm. While graph databases will need to use multiple statements to store a single record, mm -hmm. um, a... Uh, a relational database will always have that record together as a, as a single object. Uh, so mm -hmm. they're very, very good at that kind of uh, data storage. Mm -hmm. When your data is more flexible and freeform, it doesn't mm -hmm. always have this, these attributes or sometimes it has those attributes and not others. And um, I want to introduce new entity types um, mm -hmm. and I don't have tables for that or... Um, you know, so when your data, you know, is more flexible, your model evolves over time, um, 
you can have arbitrary linkages between pieces of data. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where graph databases really shine. Mm-hmm. Um, so graph databases typically don't require any kind of um, uh, schema updating. Now in Datomic, you can add to the schema saying, oh, I've got a new attribute that I, right. I want to store now. But you're not usually changing you know, what the current schema is. Uh, and and having those um, uh, you know having those op- operations of going from one version of the database to the next, um, mm. which can be very expensive on on relational databases. Mm. Um, so graph databases do exceptionally well with um, models changing, schemas changing, mm. Uh, mm. because they don't really store uh, schema particularly. Um, in the case of RDF, um, schemas are stored as like more descriptive rather than prescriptive. In the case mm-hmm. of Datomic, schemas are really mostly about uh, uh, attribute Type types, of information. Well, right. you know, cardinality and uniqueness and um, type uh, and type. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. Um, you know, they're, they're still not as as stringent as like these are the only columns that I have and these are all I'm allowed to have and they have to have these data types and, um, uh, you know, things like that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, the main one. <laughs> um, Asami itself or RDF is particularly good when you don't even have any sense of what data you're about to get. Mm-hmm. Um, one... One thing that Asami is very good for is taking arbitrary JSON or Eden and just loading it and then issuing queries to seeing what you have. And you can explore mm-hmm. your data through queries. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's actually a fun way to explore data and, and find out what you have and how to link things from one thing to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like for very large JSON files, uh, we've been finding a lot of utility in uh, and just loading them up and querying them to find out what the shape is and, and what potential linkages there are. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I know there is also a command line interface for Asami, so you can load them up from the command line. Yes, yeah. Yeah, right. You can also do a lot of things uh, without really, not really needing much, right? Yeah, uh, and when it's in memory, that can be pretty quick. Right. Um, so I can, you know, if I've got a, uh, a 20 gigabyte file, <laughs> I can... I can load it all into Asami and then issue some queries on it and you know, just get that data out quickly or even do it as a single command line where I say load it from here, issue this query on it and give me the output and then it exits. So you can even use it as a command line tool. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I was inspired a little by um, uh, Mikkel Borkent mm-hmm. on, uh, with Babashka there. Right, I see. Uh, cool. Uh, would there be anything else you want to mention or? Uh, well, if we're talking mostly RDF and graph databases and Asami, then I think, yeah, that, that's it. I mean, there's so much to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. Or yeah. maybe I shouldn't be talking about it. Maybe I should just be writing the code. But, <laughs> um, I mean, just in, in the last couple of months, I've actually taken a break from it. Um, Cisco has like was using it internally. They have uh, shifted focus on what they were doing and uh, said we don't need to develop that anymore at the moment. And so they mm-hmm. um, uh, 
it's not being supported by Cisco anymore, uh, mm-hmm. but it's still open source. It's still my hobby. So I'm, yeah. I'm going forward with it um, as I always have. And, yeah, um, yeah it just uh, I, a year ago I thought that we were um, some new people were coming in to help me on it, but that got mm-hmm. closed down almost as soon as it started. So mm-hmm. um, it's, still, it's still just me. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I'm sure there are some people in the community that also like provide some feedback and. Uh, yeah, yeah, and every so often I get a, a patch for it, which is really, really welcome. Um, you know, I um, I want to take any uh, any submissions that people provide and just mm-hmm. uh, incorporate them, even if it doesn't necessarily work. Um, <laughs> ideally. Uh, I want to incorporate it and if there's an issue then I'll start working like around the issue but I don't want to change w- what other people have put time and effort into because uh, I really want to encourage other people's mm-hmm. participation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if someone wants to like reach out, I guess the best thing, is there any channel on Closure and Slack? Yeah, somebody created one for me. <laughs> it's okay. just called cool, Asami, cool. A-S-A-M-I. Right. Um, right. And of course, I can always be found on Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and I'm sure there's uh, GitHub issues and just general stuff that so everybody understands out. Yeah. Cool. Well, Paula, it was an absolute pleasure uh, to chat to you uh, about the Sami graph databases and um, everything. I hope we will do it again and talk about some other topics. So, uh, Thank you very much. I, I thank you. appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, consider supporting it by rating it on your platform and telling others about it. You can also support it directly by buying subscription at closure.stream or sponsoring it on GitHub sponsors. All the details in the show notes below.